Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. God, it is true, as Nikki sung, that a baby changes everything. We, we, we know that, Lord, from life's experience with our own children. But as we've been unpacking here at our church, when you came as a baby, it took us to a new level. And truly, God, it changed everything about the course of this world, the course of our spiritual lives, the, the substance of our relational lives with you and with others. Lord, as we've been seeing, it has the power and the capacity to change everything about our world. And so as we continue with that theme, God, right now from your word, I pray that you'd give us wisdom and insight and understanding, discernment, that we might understand rightly this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I pray too that there would not be one of us here this morning that would walk out escaping the application, the realities of the things that we're talking about, that we would have the courage to apply these things personally to our lives as we enter into a new year. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that both of those came to us in your son, this baby, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So uh, Christmas is now over, and uh, most of us all know what it's like to get a small gift only to open it and find a big surprise, right? Might not have happened to you this year, but I'm guessing it's happened to you in years past, a small gift with a really big surprise, like those commercials where somebody gets a small box and in it is a set of keys to a really light, nice Lexus, right? Small gift, big surprise. Or a woman who gets a small velvet box only to open it and find a beautiful piece of jewelry, a small gift, a big surprise. I mentioned to you guys last week that I take a lot of delight and enjoyment in this Christmas season that we're in. I got a lot of good memories and traditions from my childhood that helped me here. And I'll never forget one year, way back in the early 1970s, I'm going to date myself here, in which I was maybe 9 or 10 years old, and it was one of the first times that I experienced this small gift, big surprise motif. Some of you remember a, way, a hot item way back then, look up here on the screen, that was called a take-and-tape cassette recorder. How many of you remember this from way, way back then? Oh, you guys are losers. The next, uh, the next one is, next, the next uh, group of people will get it. But anyways, you'll see it here on the screen, the take-and-tape recorder. Let me tell you about this thing. This thing was made back in the days when having your own personal tape recorder, I know it seems odd now, was like an unheard-of thing. Like nobody had them back then. Trust me, I was a kid, and I wanted one in the worst way. And finally, Mattel, I think it was, it was Panasonic here, came out with a take-and-tape recorder that was mass-produced and that was relatively inexpensive. And I got to tell you, back in the early 70s, these things were hot items, and they were really cool. They were kind of like the iPods of our days back in, of, of today, back in the 70s. And the reason that they were so cool is because finally, as a kid or as an adult, you could record anything that somebody said. And you could get in a lot of trouble with these things. Remember Richard Nixon and Watergate? You could get in a lot of trouble with a take and tape. And I wanted one in the worst way because I wanted to tape my sister on the phone with her boyfriend. I wanted to tape music off the radio. I wanted to tape my parents talking about me and my brother. Again, it was called a take and tape. And all year I wanted one in the worst way. And so Christmas morning comes around. And like most young kids, I started with the really big presents first. And I got to tell you, I was kind of disappointed. Thanks, Mom, for the pillow. Thanks, Grandma, for the coat. You know, things like that. And I finally got to this rather small-looking box, and I opened it. And my parents tell me all over the years, throughout, down through the years, that I just went ballistic when I got this taken tape. 
I had an uncle there that day that said he had never seen a kid so excited about a gift in all of his life. It was a taken tape, and it's a Christmas I'll never forget. And I think it's only God's sense of humor that with all that I did with this taken tape over the years, that now as an adult, I can't say anything on Sunday morning that's not recorded. <laughs> Is that not ironic or what? It's like sweet justice in God's mind. A small gift and a really big surprise, and I think most of us can relate. And so here's the point. Last week we saw that in Matthew's telling of Jesus' birth, recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, he uses just four words, a very small phrase, really, that's easy to drive by, but it has huge implications for Christmas. And those four words, as recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, are this, Emmanuel, God with us. As he describes Jesus coming into this world, he says his name is Emmanuel, it's from Isaiah, meaning God with us. And like a big surprise that comes in a seemingly small package, I put before you last week, and this was our main point, this is that this idea of God with us has huge implications for our lives. It can literally change everything. It can alter the course of a human life once we truly understand what the Bible's getting at here for you and me today, this idea of Christmas, of God being with us. And so we began unpacking these four little words and what they mean. And by way of review, I just want you to notice that they, we said that they meant initially two things, two things that God with us means. First is that it means that Jesus can do something we could not do for ourselves, namely forgive us our sins. If you remember this, we established the fact that all of us have fallen short of God's glory, of his goodness, that all of us from birth are separated from him. And so only Jesus, as God come in the flesh, could bring us the forgiveness that we needed from Almighty God. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, which is what Good Friday and Easter is about, we established that he brought forgiveness to those who believe and trust in him. And it's what this idea of God with us means. And then you remember we noted a second thing that God with us further means, and that is that Jesus can now relate to us. Do you remember that? He can now relate to our struggles and to the world that we live in. Simply put, because he was God come in the flesh, he has now been here. And he's gone through all that you and I have gone through. And so we got a friend, the Bible says, you can read about it in John 15, who can relate to us and yet also one who can help us because he's been down the pathway of temptation and come out the other side unscathed. He came out the other side with complete victory, like a perfect life, which you and I will never do, but he did, and so he can help us. He can relate. Two initial things that begin to show us how God with us can begin to change everything in our spiritual and relational lives. And this morning, I want to continue unpacking the implications of God being with us. And so here's the third thing that it means. And that is that it means he will now never leave us. Did you know that? He will never leave us. God has been here once. He's coming again. And the Bible says so very clearly, he's never going to leave us. Now, some of you who are closely tracking with me right now are thinking, what do you mean, Jamie, he's never going to leave us? I mean, you just said he did leave us. He was here for a while, 2,000 years ago, died on a cross, rose from the dead, said goodbye, and then ascended into heaven, promising to come back someday. And now 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for him to come back. And so what do you mean that he's never going to leave us? 
Well, here's what I mean. I want you to check out Jesus's, some of Jesus' very last words as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 20. I don't think Jesus could have been more clear. Look at what he says, Matthew 28, verse 20. He says, and I quote, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, here it is, I am with you always to the end of the age. Focus on that last phrase. I am with you always to the end of the age, which simply means the end of time as we know it. And then if you want further clarification, check out John chapter 14, verses 18 to 19, where Jesus says this. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. So add all this together, folks. I will not leave you. I will come to you. You will see me. I mean, don't miss what he is telling us here. That though Jesus has physically returned to the Father's side in heaven, his initial coming to be with us, his initial coming ushered in a new form of his presence never before seen in the history of God's dealing with humankind and never to be taken away. Isn't that amazing? That God with us means that he has a presence now with us that even though Jesus ascended into heaven is still with us because we've been now given the Holy Spirit and the presence of Christ with us and it's never going to be taken away and it's the kind of presence that people of old simply salivated after and longed for. Now to best understand this, you need to understand what it was like before Jesus came to be with us. So I want you to look at what the book of Hebrews, which is a book that talks a lot about the Old Testament, even though it's in the New Testament, and tells us what life was like back then and how things have changed. Look at what the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 13, and then verses 39 and 40 tell you and me about how everything has changed. This passage is talking about some of the Old Testament saints who were the most faithful of the bunch and look at what this passage says about their spiritual experience compared to ours. This is awesome. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And all these people, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And I would submit to you folks that what was promised then was nothing more and nothing less than the coming of Jesus into this world complete with his presence that would never leave us. It's a unique form of his presence and grace that you and I now have through the abiding Holy Spirit and the indwelling Son, God himself living in us for those of us who believe and follow him. Folks, this stuff was so real in the, in the first century to people who had lived and been with Jesus and then seen him ascended. Look at how Paul the Apostle would describe this in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, referring to Old Testament stuff, but the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow. Hang on to that image for a second here and look at how the writer of Hebrews uses the same one. Look at Hebrews 10 verse 1. He says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
I mean, don't miss the imagery that's being used here. It's a simple word picture, but it's really profound. Faith in God under the Old Testament law, which is really a bunch of do's and don'ts that God had them do back then, is but a shadow compared to Christ coming to this earth. It's a shadow. And you and I both know that a shadow, though real in one sense, I mean, it's there and we can see it, is not, however, the real thing in essence. It's not anything of substance. A shadow isn't really real in the sense that you can touch it and that it has any substance to it. No, a shadow is always something pointing to the real thing. And so people in Old Testament times, before God came into this world through his son Jesus, were experiencing a shadow. And they knew that there had to be more to come, much more. And they knew that the experience that they were having of the presence and activity of God in their lives was only a prelude to what people would eventually get when Jesus showed up on the scene and they became followers of him. They knew that there was a level of God's intimate and abiding presence that would someday come that would make their experience look shadow-like in comparison. And so don't miss this, folks. Through faith in this man Jesus, this God with us, right now, you and me have access to God and access to his abiding presence that people of old longed for and salivated after and never had. You and I have that opportunity right now. Whether you realize it or not, whether you avail yourselves of it or not, it's true. God is now with us in a way never before seen in the history of the world since the fall of humankind, and it's all bound up in this man Jesus, and it changes everything. His presence is with you now if you choose to follow and trust and obey Christ. That's one of the key things the Bible makes clear. I love a a story that is told by a retired pastor in Colorado, Bill Frey, about his friend John. When Pastor Bill met John, he was blind, and one day he asked him, how did you lose your sight? And John said, I lost my sight in a chemical explosion at the age of 13. John went on to say, for me, life was over at that time. I felt helpless. I hated God. For the first six months, I did nothing to improve my lot in life. I would eat all my meals alone in my room, and then one day my father entered my room and said, John, winter's coming, and the storm windows need to be hung. That's your job. He said, I want them hung by the time I get back this evening or else. And then he turned and walked out of my room and slammed the door. John goes on to say, I got so angry, I thought to myself, who does he think I am? I'm blind. He said, I was so angry that I decided I was going to do it. I felt my way to the garage. I found the windows. I located the necessary tools. I found the ladder. All the while muttering to myself, I'll show them. I'll fall, and then they're going to have a blind and paralyzed son on their hands. John finishes the story by saying, I got the windows up, and much to my incredible surprise, I found out later that never at any moment was my father more than four or five feet from my side the entire time. Folks, that's the God that you serve as believers and followers of Christ. No matter what you go through, No matter how many times you feel like you're blind and you don't see, no matter how many times you feel like you're in the absolute just pits of despair, God says he is never more than four or five spiritual feet from you every moment of every day. That's what the presence of Jesus means to you and me 
once we latch on to this. And so a while back, I was reading the news, and I ran across a story about the famous billionaire investor Warren Buffett. At that time, he was the second richest man in the world, worth about $44 billion. And in wanting to help a needy charity, he offered one lunch, just one two-hour lunch to be auctioned off, with the winner and seven friends getting to have lunch with the famous businessman. And the proceeds of the auction would go to charity. And the starting bid was $25,000. And over the next few days, 110 people placed bids. And the final winning bid to have lunch with Warren Buffett was $351,100 to have lunch with him. Let that sink in a moment. Somebody paid $350,000 to be in the presence of Warren Buffett. And I'm here to tell you this morning, and you got to love this, and that is that because of Jesus and because of his coming to this earth, you can now have all of your dinners in his presence, all of your lunches in his presence, all of your breakfasts in his presence. You can even have all of your late night binges, and you know what I'm talking about, in his presence. I mean, the reality is, grab onto this, you don't have to pay a dime. He says you can be in his presence 24-7, availing yourselves of his reality with you because he came to be with us. This baby truly changes everything. And folks, unless some of you think otherwise, the known and experienced presence of God is powerful. In his presence, you confess sin and get it off your chest. In his presence, you learn truth and it takes root in your mind and your heart. In his presence, you experience power in your soul. In his presence, you get love and forgiveness and they become experienced realities. In his presence, hope becomes not just a far-off pipe dream but a a hard-won certainty. I, I mean, we would all admit that the actual presence of God, if we could experience it, would really change everything about our lives. And that brings me to the practical application of all of this, and that is when I finally get, as a theologian and as a pastor, the fact that God came to be with us and that his presence has never left us, I ask myself, why is it that most Christians don't act like God is always with them? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, I don't mean to be too harsh, but I'm telling you, many Christians today that I know tend to act like what I would label Christian agnostics. They're Christian agnostics. They're Christian because they come to church and their theology is all cogent, they believe all the right things, but if you were to follow them around for a day, the joy, the peace, and the fruit of all the presence of God with them is absence and lack, absent and lacking, and if you were to ask them, they would tell you they never really experience the perceived presence of God in their lives. Which, let's be honest, would make us a Christian agnostic. Because in a very real sense, we're Christian in our theology, but in our experience, we just don't know. Because he never seems to be all that real to us. And so the question becomes, why don't you and I experience the presence of God, this God now with us, as a more of an ongoing reality? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, why is peace and joy not more visible realities for the average follower of Jesus Christ. And as you're thinking about the answer to this question, I want to suggest to you what I believe is a significant reason why many Christ followers today, even many good and well-meaning Christ followers, don't sense the abiding presence of God with them, why they don't seem to be able to draw near. And as you're thinking about this, I want you to look up here on the screen, and I want you to check out this quote from a writer by the name of Frederick Faber. This is interesting what he observes here. 
Look at what he says. He says, there's hardly ever a complete silence in our soul. God is whispering to us well nigh incessantly. Whenever the sounds of the world die out in the soul or sink low, then we hear these whisperings of God. He is always whispering to us, only we do not always hear because of the noise, hurry, and distraction which life causes as it rushes on. Do you catch what he is getting at here, folks? Like so many wise and spiritual writers of old, they have learned that unless you intentionally slow down and drown out all the rush and noise of fast-paced, always-on-the-go culture, then the chances of your soul sensing God's presence with you is greatly diminished. Put simply, if you slow down and be in his presence, there's a much better chance that you're going to experience this ever-present God with you. Faber knew this, and he wrote about it. Now, let me blow your mind even more about the significance of this statement from Faber. You would think that he is writing in our day and age. He says, noise, hurry, distraction, which life causes as it rushes, rushes on, but he didn't. Now, look up here at the screen again. Give me a click here, guys, and notice when he lived. He lived from 1814 to 1863, He most likely wrote this quote before you between 1850 and 1860 over in Britain. I mean, think about that. He wrote these words about hearing God's voice and slowing down when there were no cars, no radios, no TVs, no electricity, no air travel, no mass transit systems, no travel sports teams for the average kid, no stock market, at least like we know it today. I mean, everything by design 150 years ago was slower and less noisy. And so let me ask you, if this idea of having to slow down and drown out the noise of culture in order to sense the presence of God was true for people back then, what does it say about you and me today? I mean, wrestle with that. And I would say it simply says this, that if they had to slow down, then we exponentially have to slow down if we're ever going to experience the presence of God. I think it's something the average evangelical Christian doesn't get today. That if Faber had to slow down in his day and age, when quite frankly everything was awfully slow as it was, and it's now exponentially faster, then it only makes sense, then we need to exponentially slow down. We're never really going to sense the presence of God with us. This is what many Christian writers point out today. And I think it's true. I want to do a little exercise with you right now that might help you gauge where you're at in your life right now. Look up here on the screen and look at these three pictures that I put up there for you. A serene sunset, a busy urban street, and a cold winter landscape. And as you're looking at those three pictures, I want you to ask yourself the question, which one best describes the state of my soul right now? Be really honest with yourself that if you and I were having a cup of coffee at Starbucks or wherever you go, and I just showed you these three pictures, and I said, just tell me honestly, which one is your life right now? Which one would you say describes you? Is your life a serene sunset? You know, peace, calm, beauty, and joy? Is that where you're at right now? Or is it a busy urban street, rushed, fast-paced, hurried, and distracted? Is that your soul? Or maybe it's a cold winter landscape. You know, frigid, silent, alone, somewhat barren. I mean, maybe this is where you're at right now. Of these three pictures, be honest with yourself, just between you and God, 
which one best describes your soul, your life right now? Because here's the point, folks. In two out of three of these scenarios, you stand a very good chance of hearing and sensing the presence of God as voice to you, not all the time, and certainly not just when you want it, but you stand a good chance nonetheless of connecting with God in two out of three of these scenarios. Can you guess which two that they are? If you know your Bible, you know that they are the serene sunset, obviously, but also the cold winter landscape. Because time after time, folks, the Bible tells us that God meets people in the quietness of their soul when they're focused on him with a humble and contrite heart, and or he meets people in the land of barren brokenness when you're at your wit's end and you're still and silent before him, though frigid and cold because you're in a painful place. The Bible tells us that in those two scenarios, God tends to make himself very known. Jesus taught us this. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Paul the Apostle experiences when he says in 2 Corinthians 1, praise be to the God of all comfort who comforts us in our most deepest times of trial. You see, all the spiritual writers, all the New Testament writers experience the presence of God either in the serene sunset or the cold winter landscape. That's when we can experience God. And though many times you don't have a choice over which one it will be because life throws a lot of curveballs, Let's face it, you and I always have a choice between the two, that we can either choose to be a serene sunset or we're just in that barren place and we can choose to stay there. And yet isn't it interesting that the only time we don't sense God's presence is when we are like Jonah, on the run with our own agenda, keeping busy and hoping that God won't notice that we're refusing to get quiet and listen to him in his presence. Isn't that interesting? That God chooses to reserve his presence for those of us who take time to get quiet before him or for those of us who are in that lonely place in which he can enter into. But if we choose to be like Jonah, always on the run, as Jonah himself testified, you forfeit the grace that could have been yours. And that's a quote right out of Jonah chapter 2. The choice is ours, folks. We can slow down and be in his presence whether it's a serene warmth or a cold, lonely place, or we can keep up the pace and wonder why it is that we never experience his presence. And so here's what I want you to do this week after Christmas. I want you to slow down. I want you to get quiet and focus on the meaning of Christ in this world, the meaning of Christ come to be with you. And I want to see if and as you do that, if you don't start to sense his presence, his still small voice in profound ways. You know, this next week, I'm going to take basically a week of vacation. I usually do between Christmas and New Year's. And then after that, I'm going to take a week of study. You guys know what I call it, my study break. So for the next two weeks, I'll be out of pocket next Sunday. Daryl will be here, but I'll be back on the 9th. For the next two weeks, I'm basically going to take an incredible amount of alone time. And I've already planned out what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a nice long hike tomorrow, and I'm not telling any of you where. Because I'm going to go out and be with the Lord. And, and then I'm going to go up to Flagstaff and be with my daughter for a day and just take some hikes up there, even though it'll be that, that frigid cold. And then I'm going to take a couple of days of R&R &R with my family. Then I'm going to spend New Year's with some friends. And then the week after that, I'm going to go to a lonely place, 
up in the mountains for an entire week, and I'm taking five books on grace. And I'm not going to prepare any sermon outlines. I'm not going to do anything silly like that. I'm just going to bathe myself in the presence of God and his grace in preparation for where we need to go as a church next year. And I got to tell you, it will be some painful times as I do this for the next two weeks. It really will. It's hard to slow down. Have you ever tried it? You slow down and the guilt catches up. You slow down and the insecurity catches up. You slow down and all the dragons inside seem to rear their ugly head. I don't know at times whether that's the flesh or the evil one or the world, our three enemies, but I just know that it's real. But as you gut through that stuff, as you slow down to be in his presence, and I haven't slowed down for about five months right now, as you slow down to do that, if I don't miss my guess, I'm going to have some meaningful times with the Lord. And so I just hope you join me in doing that in your life, especially as we prepare for our focus on grace. And as you're doing that, I want you to remember one last thing that God with us means. And I'm going to skip number four for you note takers. We'll pick that up another time. I'm going to go right to number five because it leads right into it. And it's this, that as you slow down and get into his presence, now don't miss this, realize that you are called to receive him. You are called to receive him. Interesting, look at how John wraps up his opening words about Jesus is coming into this world in his gospel. Look at John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I would submit to you, we're now at the summit. This is the heart of it all, folks. Receiving God's gift of Jesus Christ into your life. You know, it's fascinating. When, when uh, people usually quote John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, they use it in a salvific sense. Have you ever noticed that? Frank, they usually use it to, to lead somebody to Christ. They'll say, well, if you believe in Christ and trust him for eternal life, then you are now his and he is now yours and you're now saved and you're a Christian. And by the way, that is the context of John 1, 12 and 13. So that's the right usage of it. But I sometimes wonder if not another thing that John is getting at here, and I don't miss this, is that once you receive Christ the first time for eternal life, which we all need to do at some point in our life, if there isn't a sense in which we then need to continue to receive him each moment of each day, especially if you're ever going to get any mileage out of your spiritual life and sense his presence each moment of each day. I think there's some truth in that. I was trying to think of a good illustration of this uh, last night as I was putting the uh, finishing touches on our message today. And the thought that hit me right before going to bed, and I thought this was such a cool thought, is I thought, my marriage. It's just like my marriage. It, you know, 1988, 22 years ago, 23 next year, I, I said I do to my wife, Kim. And it was a glorious day, just like many of your wedding days. I mean, it was a beautiful sunny day in Cleveland, and we met there at the nice little church, and the minister was there, and Kim and I were massively in love, very young, feelings flying high. All of our family was there and our friends, and it was just a picture-perfect, wonderful day. And as we walked down the aisle, we said our I do's, and in a very real sense, don't miss this, what happened that day, the Bible says the two became one flesh. I received Kim into my life, and she received me into her life, and we became married. It was an awesome experience. And yet, every day since then, I've had to remind myself that I continue to need to receive her into my life. Men, give me a head nod that you understand what I'm talking about, right? And there have been times in my 22 years of marriage 
where I've not been cognizant of receiving Kim in my life, where I've gotten placid, lazy, lethargic when it comes to my love for her and not received her. And what happens when that happens? I get distant from her. She gets distant from me. We're still married, to be sure, but we're a marriage that now has fallen on some trouble that kind of goes by the wayside a little bit. Kim and I have been there. I've shared that with you guys. And so what is it that brings it back? Receiving her once again. Waking up every day and saying, this is the bride of my youth. This is the one that God has brought into my life. I made a vow to love, honor, and cherish her. And that's what I'm going to do. And when I make that decision, lo and behold, I start to experience her love and her presence once again in my life. And I sometimes wonder if it's not the same with God. That that you and I, hopefully, have had wonderful conversion experience at some point in our life. Kind of like a wedding day where you received Christ into your life. Some of you don't know when that day was, but you know what happened. Some of you are still waiting for that day to happen. We'll pray here in just a second. And yet, don't let that day deceive you. That was a wonderful and great day. But it is possible, the Bible says, for you to kind of not receive him then each day and find yourself drifting. Have you ever been there? I have. John would write about it in the book of Revelation when the Spirit says to one of the churches, you've lost your first love. C.S. Lewis calls it losing your first fervor. That excitement and that joy you once had are not there anymore. And though one could argue that that's a normal and natural part of the spiritual life, I'm not always sure. I'm not always sure that God doesn't want us to stay connected with him 24-7 in faith, abiding in the vine, as John 15 says, so that we might experience and know his presence. And it's a choice that you and I have, just like it's a choice that I have whether to draw close to Kim or not, to receive Kim into my world each moment of each day. You got the same choice with God. And so my encouragement to you is not only to get alone and slow down with the Lord, but then to receive him afresh into your life. And I'm going to help you do that by praying with you right now. So would you all bow with me? Father God, I thank you that on this day after Christmas, as we're still focusing on the meaning of God with us, this, your son Jesus coming into this world, that God, we can learn a couple of key things about our spiritual lives today. Not the least of which, that you're always with us, And that, Lord, because you're always with us, you call us to regularly receive you into our lives. Lord, we know that we're not getting saved over and over again when we do that. That would be silly. We know that we believe once for salvation. But the Lord, after that, it begins an ongoing relationship with you in which, God, we're called to stay close to you, to draw near, as the book of Hebrews says, to receive you on a regular basis into our lives each and every morning. And so, God, I pray that for those of us who have been veteran believers for a long time now but might have fallen on some sterile times in our walk with you, I pray, God, that today might be a a good reminder, if not a great challenge, to receive you once again and to spend the remainder of this day and the next couple of weeks, months, years in our lives reconnecting with you through faith in the risen Jesus. And Lord, I pray as well for those who can relate to the marriage analogy that might be here today that have never gotten married to you, who've never received your son Jesus into their life for the very first time, that they would not be shy to do that right now. And that Lord, right where they sit on this December 26th day, they accept you. They accept your son Jesus into their lives as Lord and Savior. They understand that he came to forgive them of their sin, to bring them eternal life and even life here and now. 
And so, Lord, may today mark their spiritual birthday as they believe and receive in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for your grace that has come to us. Bless us this next year as we talk about grace in a lengthy fashion, in a fashion that will only give glory to you. And, Lord, may we realize how powerful your grace is in transforming us into the people you want us to be. Lord, we pray these things only and always in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people say together, Amen. Amen. God bless you, and I'll see you next year.